Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. USU professor Meredith Ross Peterson is among the most beloved American history teachers ever to step inside a college classroom. Several generations of students have voted him their favorite instructor. A fair number became teachers themselves. Ross Peterson's new book is Christmas in Montpelier. It offers a look into his early life, where his wry humor, work ethic, and kindness were honed. Twelve Christmases come to life in the book as he grows from a small boy in a hard-scrabbled farmhouse with no running water inside and a two-hole privy outside to one of the nation's most honored educators. Ross Peterson joins us for the hour today. Ross Peterson, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Tom. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing doing well. How about yourself? Very fine. Thank you, sir. Well, it'd be great to have you in the studio as usual, but uh, with COVID, we're taking precautions, so we're on the on have you on the phone today. Um, well, I understand. Uh, so, I want to mention here at the beginning, uh, there is an event, a virtual event, this evening at six, put on by the USU Alumni Association. Uh, it's a virtual book signing, and uh, so uh, Dr. Peterson will be talking about uh, his book. And uh, if you sign up and register, you'll get a signed book plate uh, in the mail. Um, and you just, uh, to, to register for that free event, uh, you can, uh, just, uh, just, uh, search for USU Alumni Association. And then once at their site, uh, click on events, register for that. Uh, if you don't want to register, you can still uh, get that event tonight at six by going to the USU Alumni Association Facebook page. So that's coming tonight. And we want to talk about the book, uh, uh today. Uh, so, Ross Peterson, uh, we're, we're talking about Montpelier, Idaho, right? Bear, Bear Lake Valley. Yes, sir. That's, uh, that's where I was born and raised. Yeah. Um, interestingly, you say you, um, the, the general stories, these are 12 Christmases, uh, but in general you started writing down stories so that your grandkids could get to know your parents, who were gone, I guess, by the well, time your, your grandchildren started to arrive. Well, my children and grandchildren, and uh, and now great grandchildren. I, you know, as a historian, I've always believed that uh, to understand people, you have to understand a bit about where they're from, and also who they're related to. I call it geography and genealogy. And so, uh, I had uh, I'd written one of these, the very first one at the request of one of my former students, John Miller, uh, to read a Christmas story at a gathering he had. And uh, and that was after I'd kind of I'd been down at Deep Springs and been writing on the Cache County history. And so I got to cut a feel back about farm work. And I'd always done my le- best ever since I left high school to never engage in that practice again. <laughs> especially milking cows, but uh, but that brought it back, and with a touch of nostalgia, I remembered that first story and wrote it down, and then every year after, uh, that's when I got, okay, my children really didn't know my parents, uh, for sure my grandchildren, and so therefore, I, I, I just thought of this way to give them a sense once a year of uh, their ancestral roots. Um, so, uh, I want to read this from the uh, from your acknowledgments. You say, I love my hometown and its people. Some of the toughest, kindest, meanest, forgiving, and loving of God's human creations roam these streets. I learn from all of them. Their children were my, my friends, and our fondness grows as time passes. 
What is it about hometown? As I was reading this book, and I, I especially responded to a, uh, there's a photograph from the 1950s of Montpelier. And, you know, this isn't my hometown, but I sure had a wave of nostalgia as I, as I, as I looked at this uh, photograph, uh, Main Street and the, the trees and the median. Uh, what is it about hometown that evokes this? Well, I, I think we're all different a little bit about how we feel about our roots. And it's come from a fairly small town. Uh, you, you know, sometimes you can't wait to get out. But there, uh, to me, it's connection through people. And then, uh, you know, once I came back to Logan and, you know, we're I was only 70 miles away, and my one brother still lives there. I go back, and, and I watch as the town changed dramatically from what it had been when I was a child, meaning primarily economically, and uh, and the downtown area, the businesses just kind of dwindled and got boarded up. And I think to, to return to that kind of a, a community that you lived in when you were young is it, it, it's. It, I know it struck a very responsive chord with many of my classmates, as well as uh, a number of other people that are from small towns. And and but to me, it, it's primarily about the people. I think. Mm-hmm. And there is that part that you mentioned. You you can't you can't really go back, right? I mean, things change, um, and so it is memory, oh. right? It is memory. Yeah. Right, and, and and they changed dramatically, and and you know for a, for a while a lot of the people you knew were still there, and that drew you back, especially the relationship I had with with a number of the teachers, as well as uh, as some of my classmates always stayed there, and then a few of uh, in retirement have moved back, but and we get together frequently now, and. Uh, and it's different because you don't come. And first, you know, the first few class reunions, people kind of like to brag about themselves. The second ones, they brag about their kids. And uh, by the time they they're in their fifties, they're just pretty dang glad to be alive <laughs> and to see each other. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty accurate sequence. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me about Montpelier, circa forties and fifties that you write about uh, in in the book. I was especially interested. You say at least for a time there was a Mormon Gentile divide. You know, the Church of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints founded the town, I think, right? And um, uh, in fact, you say it even got some others a fence in the middle of town at some at one point. <laughs> that goes back to the eighteen eighties, but but when the uh, Mormon pioneers were sent up there in the eighteen sixties, eighteen sixty three, in the middle of the Civil War, and that's when my great-grandparents uh, went there in, uh, from Denmark in 1863 and 64. Montpelier was 64, Paris, and the west side of the valley in 63. And uh, and then in the 1880s, the railroad came through. And the Oregon Trail goes through on the east side of the, the valley, cuts in near the Bear River, and then follows it all the way down to sort of Springs and ultimately you know, all the way to Oregon. But when they built the Oregon Short Line, a branch off the Union Pacific that connected, uh, in effect, Denver, Chicago to Portland, it came right through Montpelier. 
And in the construction of the railroad and in the first railroaders that worked there, and a lot of the businesses that came in that were associated with railroad were not LDS people. And there was this, you know, genuine fear of, I guess what you'd say, intermarriage and also, you know, habits and uh, how these people conducted their lives when they had a regular paycheck and the local people were trying to eat out in existence at nearly 6,000 feet on a, on a farm with an 82-day-a-year growing season. And, uh, and the, uh, the LDS Church did not adopt public education in its communities really until after statehood in, in uh, Utah and Idaho. And, you know, like the, the high schools in Cache County, the public schools weren't until, you know, about, uh, right before World War I. And the same thing up uh, uh, Montpelier High School was like 1909. And so, so the schools were church schools versus public schools. Then you had a downtown where the railroaders hung out and an uptown where the LDS people hung out. And for a brief time, they did construct a, a fence, which they called a wall. And it was a fence along 8th Street to kind of keep it separate. But, uh, but as the story goes, the Burgoyne family, which had a very successful mercantile business in uptown, they, they couldn't stand losing all that cash money down below. And so they opened up a couple front stores down there, and other people did. And and then gradually, I think when public education came in, the community had to respond uh, and just kind of got on together. And it, it really isn't until about uh, World War One that, that LDS kids started working for the railroad. There was It was kind of like that was taboo, too, because it meant that they could, uh, you know, they could they could run routes up into Wyoming or different places, and and the whole isolation was changed by the railroad. By the 1940s and 50s, I mean, that was literally the lifeblood of the valley. I mean, they changed crews in Montpelier. You had a section hands there. You had a, a, a roundhouse for servicing engines. You had a freight station as well as a passenger station. And when I was a boy, three passenger trains came through Montpelier, each direction, each day. So, uh, so it, that was really the basis of the economic success for a long time in the valley for the railroads. And your father worked for at least a railroad-related company, right? It's the old story. He had to work to support the farm. Oh yeah, he and, and many of our other uh, friends and neighbors, uh, you know, especially as farms were divided among children, and especially. With polygamous families, pretty soon you got too many people on on small acres in a pretty forbidding landscape. And yeah, my dad went to work right before World War II for the Pacific Fruit Express, which was a division of the Union Pacific that had the responsibility to heat cars or ice cars. And uh, and he worked uh, up until about 1954 when they began to get automated heaters and automated refrigerated cars. And uh, I think I mentioned it in one of the stories that we were given. Uh, he could transfer to Southern California down at, out in the Imperial Valley uh, near Blythe. Or I think it was near Blythe. And we'd have to move, of course, for him to 
to retain his railroad rights. And we voted as a family that we'd try to eke it out there in the valley, which, uh, from the perspective of the children, we did all, all right. I think for the economic uh, well-being of my folks, it was a scramble. Hmm. So they they, uh, they continue to struggle for a bit, like economically, I guess. Um, you... Well, that that started that started. Uh, it's interesting because when Dad started working on uh, when he when they quit working on the railroad, he started getting construction jobs in the summertime, which meant that had to alter the way we did farming because uh, we were up until that time we farmed with horses. And he was a master horseman, but, uh, you know, often his he'd go off on a road construction job and be gone all week. And so, you know, we just decided to go to grain and not hay and uh, sell some of the cattle. We still kept the milk cattle but, and, then, and, then, and then bought a tractor so that we could... You know, you could farm at night. You could do all kinds of other stuff, and then you just hoped like heck it was going to rain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you depended on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah ours is dry farm. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is a high valley, right? Six thousand uh, feet and uh, ninety-day growing season. It's pretty. Uh, can be a pretty harsh place. Oh yes, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, you could get a frost in June, and you could get one again in August. And so that was tough on both grain and hay. Uh, and that's why, uh, you know, I think it's, and especially for people that, that didn't have water rights to, uh, yeah, it was always a scramble. A, a good share of my teachers had small farms, Tom. Mm. And, and then they'd gone into education. And then they could work farm in the summer, but, uh, but they, uh, yeah, dual employment, and I'm amazed when I think back on it. My wife Kay and I were talking about this the other day, how many of the women worked, uh, you know, in the different stores downtown or at the, you know, for the Soil Conservation Service or the Forest Service or for the school district or, you know, just different things there. A lot of the moms worked. They really did. Mm. What are you uh, just sort of skipping ahead to, to to lessons learned? I wonder, you know, this. I've heard from many people who who say, "Boy, I, I don't know whether I would have wanted to do that again," but it sure was a great situation to raise kids, right? And and now as more and more people move off the farm, uh, um, you know what what's lost? Do you think in in terms of lessons, life lessons? Well, I think one of the one of the one of the real privileges I had. Uh, and I, you know, in retrospect, and in part because my parents passed away uh, in the early 60s, um, I got to work with my dad and and work for my mother. <laughs> I, I, and I distinguish that because a lot of the things that mother had to do were things that um, weren't nearly as fun. I mean, uh, there, there's never anything to be gained really by weeding a garden or... Uh, I remember in the early days helping her clean my my younger brother's diapers when he had to, <laughs> you know, uh, cloth diapers and rinse them off in the toilet water 
and then flush it, and then try to get the diaper as clean as possible before you put it in that pail. And uh, and then uh, also, uh, in our day, not until we moved into a different house did she have a, a real washing. Five or six years old, it would be rubbing those out on one of those old washing boards. And, uh, you know, your hands are always tapping. I mean, it was stuff like that. I mean, they're just treasured memories now. But working with my dad, and then and then even later, uh, right about the time I graduated from high school, he got me a job working for a ready mix company. And then the next year, he and my brother Max both worked for him. And then he worked ready mix concrete um, up until he died. And and then uh, and so you know to to, to work together and. Uh, and eat lunch together and, uh, and, and play together. I mean, it was, it was a good life. And I think of all the things, I think that proved most beneficial to me, not only in watching him and the work ethic, but watching his incredible honesty. And, uh, and you know, the idea of when you, when you were doing things for other people, you did them every bit as, as if you were doing it for yourself. I mean, we'd put up other people's hay and, and when we were doing concrete jobs, things like that, I mean, the pride in in trying to treat people fairly, uh, you know, I, I learned it from other people as well. But to do it from your dad, I think, was a special, special thing. Mm. We're talking with Ross Peterson on the program today. Uh, his new book is Christmas on, in Montpelier, offers a look into his early life. Um, and uh, he tells stories of uh, 12 Christmases. Uh, through the, uh, the 12 chapters of, of the book. Uh, there is a, an event put on by the USU Alumni Association. That's this evening at 6. And uh, Dr. Peterson will be doing a virtual book signing. If you register for the event, you'll be able to receive a signed book plate uh, for, for the book. Um, and uh, register. It's free. Uh, it's a virtual event. Uh, registration at, uh, just go to the USU Alumni Association webpage, click on Events. Uh, this will also be streamed on Facebook as well, the USU Alumni Association Facebook page at 6 o'clock this evening. And uh, we have much more with uh, Ross Peterson following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Cash Arts presenting Random Acts, a community performance series at the Ellen Eccles Theater, supporting local performers. New shows every week in December. Masks required, temperatures screened. Tickets at cashearts.org. Support also comes from Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and pastries seven days a week, 7 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Click Cafe Online Ordering at CafeIbis.com. This is Science by the Slice. When the Human Genome Project was declared complete in 2003, scientists celebrated bits of DNA coded for proteins, but many dismissed the importance of non-coded DNA, terming it as junk DNA. Since that time, the scientific community has acknowledged that those indecipherable genomic sequences aren't junk at all. USU scientists Anna Figgins and Karen Kapheim are exploring the role of small non-coding RNA in bumblebees, which they say may help explain the genetic mechanisms underlying bees' social behavior. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science 
offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with USU Professor Meredith Ross Peterson, uh, and uh, his new book's called Christmas in Montpelier: Twelve Christmases Come to Life. As he grows from a small boy in a hard scrabble farmhouse with no running water inside and two hole privy outside, to one of the nation's most honored educators. Um, he's uh, joining us today. There is an event tonight at 6 o'clock put on by the USU Alumni Association, a virtual book signing. You can register for this free uh, virtual event by going to USU Alumni Association webpage, clicking on Events. Um, and if you register, you can get a signed book plate uh, for your book. Uh, you don't have to register to participate. The event will be uh, streamed on Facebook. Just go to the USU Alumni Association page on on Facebook. <clears throat> so uh, before we jump back into the conversation, just want to um, let you know a little bit. Those you don't know, Dr. Peterson, let you know where he what he where he went on to after Montpelier. We're talking about Montpelier, Idaho. Um, he graduated from USU with a degree in history, received his Ph.D. in American Studies from Washington State University. After three years at University of Texas at Arlington, returned to USU, where he served as professor of American history for 33 years. He established the Mountain West Center, served as its director for over a decade. He was president of Deep Springs College in California in the early 2000s before returning again to USU as vice president for advancement, where he helped conduct the university's first comprehensive campaign. Just some of uh, Ross Peterson's uh, career there. Uh, so, Ross Peterson, I wonder if you'd uh, paint for me the, the, the routine on the, on the farm. Um, these were Christmas stories, and so I was shivering through the whole book. Uh, pretty, pretty cold in the winter. That's a high valley. Um, but uh, let me know, or, you know. Tell me, kind of paint a picture of, of the routine on the farm there. Well, I think that's one of the things that that uh, I, I checked most everything with my brother Max, and uh, Max. Uh, you know, after he retired from USU, that's another thing. I had the privilege of working with him back on campus for over 30 years. And uh, so we've, we've talked about these things back and forth. And then uh, Max really uh, did a lot with his drawings, and I've included about a dozen of them in the book that, that relate to farm life in some way. And he was much better farmer than I, and... Uh, had a keener sense for the animals. Uh, I, I viewed it as chores. He viewed it as, as kind of a, you know, a semi-love affair. And uh, But that's one of the things that got me. Uh, I just finished writing the history of Cache County, and uh, I, was, I was down at Deep Springs College the first time I taught in 1996. And one day I just got thinking about... Uh, when I the year before I went to school, when I was five years old, and and I had my dad all to myself, and uh, and I'd wait for him to come home from the railroad, and and you know, Max and Carl, my two older brothers, probably if Dad was working graveyards, they'd already milk in the morning before they went to school, and then Dad got home about eight, and he'd have breakfast. And then he'd hook up a team of horses on a sleigh, and he'd fill the sleigh with 
uh, with the cow or horse manure from the barn behind our house. And then we drive about the three miles down to to our farm or ranch down along the Bear River in between Montpelier and Paris, out in what we call the bottoms. And he would spread the manure through the field, you know, on a pattern, following one day, just fertilize, and then he'd go to the to the river and uh, chop open a uh, so the, the cattle or, or horses or whatever were down there could get a drink because uh, it was cold and. And he'd always, every day, every time I ever went with him, he'd threaten me not to whimper, not to cry. But by the time we got down there, and he just, he finally just go put me in a haystack because if you burrowed down into the hay, the loose hay, it was pretty warm. And then he'd come back and he'd load up the, the, the sleigh with hay and then take it right over to where he'd just spread the manure and then slowly spread the hay uh, along that same area so the cows, as they ate, and they... You know, they did their thing. They'd be fertilizing as well. And uh, and then he'd come back and load the hay, the sleigh again with hay, bury me down in the hay, and then uh, we'd take it up, and, and he would uh, would put the hay up into the uh, in the hayloft up in the barn. And then, uh, you know, hook, hook the team, unharness them, uh, give them walt, walt, down, take good care of them inside the barn so that they could cool down properly went out into the trail. And probably to almost go milk again. And uh, and it was just, you know, every day, seven days a week. Uh, someone asked me, you know, what did you do on Christmas Day? Well, when I was a kid, that's what you did on Christmas Day. I mean, the only difference was you stopped long enough to open some presents you still had to milk, and you still had to go feed the cattle down at the farm. And so it wasn't like, uh, I don't remember a meal, a big meal being part of Christmas, other than maybe a little bit extra special in the evening after we milked. But, uh, it, I mean, it, it was just a, it was a routine, but there was always a variation because there could be problems. And the, the one story I wrote about is, you know, his eye, he, he sees that, a heifer's missing when he's out um, chopping the ice or getting the cattle behind. And he uh, he jumped on a saddle horse that was down there in the corral and uh, went across the river, went looking, and uh, and found this heifer and his calf. But, but anyway, it, I mean, there's always something like that that's going to happen in every day. And that's just the way it is on a farm is, is – you can't schedule it, and you can't do it with a bunch of meetings. You go out, and there might be, you know, a calf sick or, uh, you know, something like that. And so, uh, but that, that was that was what we did every day in the winter. And so the stories, uh, sometimes I, I don't know if I overdo it, but I talk about that kind of stuff quite a bit. Yeah, That's really. Our yeah, yeah, it, that paints the picture. I was I kind of chuckled a little bit. It's a father's love, right? You're five years old. You want to be with your dad. I promise I won't cry. Yeah. Your dad says you better not. Um, <laughs> and then you get cold and cry almost every time, right? But he takes you with him any time. Anyway. Um, yep. And no, the other thing is that um, I've always wondered about a lot of things. But, you know, right before you go, he'd want you to go to the bathroom because 
if you add any, you know, two or three layers to keep you from freezing, the last thing you want is for you to have to go to the bathroom somewhere along the way. And, and then, you know, you never wanted to have a long sojourn in an outhouse when you were a kid. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, it, it was just, when I think back on it, it's a lot, he, he was amazingly taller and I'd have just, uh, you know, you know, go play in your bedroom, you know, stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but he was always good about, uh, about taking us. I'm sure of all the boys, I was the biggest player. <laughs> Um, I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit, I want to have you read a, a, a passage here, page six uh, from the book. This is from the very first story, um, which is called A Tweety Christmas. So first of all, yeah. Twe- Tweety is a, he's a shirt sheep herder, right? Right. Uh, and in fact, there's a, uh, there's a photograph of, of uh, a sheep camp, a sheep trailer, you know, that would have been like Tweety's. Uh, so the, the boys, this is Christmas and, uh, you, mom and dad want you to, guys to go out to your, going out in the wagon, uh, delivering presents and, uh, mom wants uh, you guys to go out to, uh, you know, an, an extra three miles out to Tweety's camp and take him a, a sack of, of presents. You guys are afraid of his dogs, right? For one thing. Um, so this, at uh, this point you're, uh, you're out there and I think you all enter his sheep, uh, trailer, which is incredibly unclean, uh, but at least warm, right? There's small pot-bellied stove here. I wonder if you could, uh, read right. this, read this for us. So just starting with the second paragraph, Tweety slowly moved aside and then, uh, to the bottom okay. and, and over the top of the page. Tweety slowly moved aside, motioning us in, three boys. Two men, five wet dogs, squeezed around a tiny potbelly stove in the middle of the camp wagon. No one could move. Ed Tweedy had beady eyes beneath a full gray beard, rushes for eyebrows, no teeth, and a limited profane vocabulary. He always smoked a pipe, but in no way did he remind us of Santa Claus. This place was so filthy that all the elves in the world could not restore order. Tonight, though, at least, it was very warm. Dad handed Tweety the flour sack, and the old man slowly looked at each item which Mother and my sister had put in that bag. In a coffee, some flour, a dozen eggs, sugar, bottled fruit, a few apples, oranges, bananas. There are also bones for the dog, matches, and a knitted stocking cap. We boys sat looking in total silence as Tweety muttered thanks poured a cup of the blackest coffee that I'd ever seen for my dad. As dad sipped it, Tweety shifted his attention to us. You boys think you're wise, men. Well, I ain't no baby Jesus. Can't do much about this being born. Do even less about his dying. Just live what he taught. I can't do it. I won't do it. It won't do you no harm. He yeah. looked at each of us, then reaching under his coat, cot, he pulled out a box and gave each of us a hand-carved willow whistle with the dried bark tied on a thread. Dad rose. Thanks, Ed. Merry Christmas. Well, have you uh, stopped stop there? That, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> you can just see uh, Mr. Tweedy there. Um, you know, he, he's not going to live it, he says, although later in the, the story, we you know, we, we learned that his kind heart, but... Uh, 
won't do you no harm, right? Meaning the boys. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, he can tell we were not happy to be there, probably. Yeah, yeah. Later on in this story, there, there's, uh, you know, there's, there, there's a crisis with an extended family, and Mr. Tweedy comes and returns this sack of, of gifts because you need to take this. I think you're going up to Montana or somewhere to, to help make the. Yeah, my mother. Yeah, my mother and dad did, uh, and uh, and Tweedy rode his mule into town and uh, and brought that back plus a few other things. Uh, you know, it was really really a nice gesture. You know, Tom, a footnote to that that I didn't say is, you know, when you when you were a kid, you wondered. Why did they care about Tweedy? You know, I mean, everybody in town was scared of him, and he'd ride that, had all those dogs, and he'd, and he'd ride his bike into town sometimes. His bike was, the, the tires were, you know, barb or bailing uh, wire, they'd tie things together, and uh, and he's just so gruff, and, and, and you, you wondered why, and Later on, my oldest brother Carl, you know, we were talking about it, and, and my dad's dad, my grandfather died in a sheep camp all alone in the middle of a Bear Lake winter of a heart attack, and and dad didn't find him. Uh, one of the other uh, farmers down feeding went over to check on him, and, and he was dead, and he was only about 62, but... Uh, and, and I think that's why my folks, my dad always looked after Tweety. <laughs> yeah, there is a connection there. Yeah. Uh, this uh, this illustration, kind of on the extreme end, but illustration of it takes a village to, to raise a child, right? That, that this was, it's not only your family that are bound up in these memories, it's, uh, oh, no. it's all the town yeah. folks. Yeah, for sure. That's a, uh, yeah, and, and you know, when, one of the things now when you, uh, we, Kay and I, and some of our other friends that, that live here, uh, Lee and Yvonne Roderick and Dale and Betty Lyons, we we got together and we decided we were going to have a big reunion up on Peter on its 150th anniversary of its settling, and so we did. It. Invited everyone that had ever graduated from high school, but one of the things we did is you walk down Main Street and you remember the people that were operating the, the stores. The grocery stores that were there, the bars, uh, two of the guys my age, uh, their dads ran bars. And, uh, and you know, you just start talking about these people. And then, you know, I think absence and time makes the heart grow fonder. But still, you, you think the, the good things as well as maybe some of the mischievous or tricky things you might have done with some of these people. But on the other hand, uh, they were a huge part of our lives. Um, well, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, want to talk about a summer story. You made it into a Christmas story by putting a preamble on this. Uh, we're we're talking about uh, Mrs. Scrooge and the baseballs. Um, okay. <laughs> and then later on, uh, a story that really touched me uh, called Jerry's Homecoming. Uh, your friend Jerry, who got polio. And um, right. and a, and a teacher who who really helped you out, Mr. Rich. 
Um, so working through some things, we'll uh, have you tell those, uh, those two stories and uh, we'll talk about much else as well. Christmas in Montpelier is the book. The author is Ross Peterson, professor emeritus at uh, USU. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Cox Honeyland, celebrating the holidays with design-your-own gift baskets, homemade fudge, and body care products. Gift certificates available. Information at coxhoney.com. Support also comes from Healthy in Utah. Getting a flu shot significantly reduces the chance of severe influenza. Annual vaccinations help ensure community immunity to the strains most likely to cause an outbreak. Learn more at inutah.org slash healthy. It's tea and candles, cookies and gingerbread houses, walks in the park and warm woolen scarves. I'm Elena C. and I'm talking about Huga, the Danish concept of contentment. This winter, join me to celebrate that concept with Huga Holiday, an hour of cozy classics from APM, American Public Media. Tune in Monday, December 7th at 9 p.m. here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us USU Professor Emeritus Ross Peterson, uh, taught for many years in USU's history department, also was the uh, vice president at USU. He was president of Deep Springs College in California and taught there previously as well. Uh, in his long career, and he's uh, recorded uh, 12 Christmas memories. Christmas in Montpelier is the resulting book, and uh, glad you're with us today. You can uh, hear from Professor Peterson again about the book. Uh, This evening, 6 o'clock, there's an event put on by the USU Alumni Association. Go to their website, click on events to register for this event. It's free and virtual. Uh, or you can uh, just go to the USU Alumni Association Facebook page, and they'll be streaming that event live there at 6 o'clock this evening. If you'd like a uh, signed um, uh, book plate for, for your book, uh, you can just register for this, this event. It's being called a virtual book signing. So Ross Peterson, uh, Mrs. Scrooge and the Baseballs. This is uh, Chapter 4. This is a really a summer story, but you made it into a... Uh, Christmas story by putting a preamble on it, uh, a time when you're, when this uh, Mrs. Holmes is elderly, right, and and your mother wants you to go over and and um, and you know help her with Christmas. But I, I wonder if we could skip ahead to the summertime. So th- this is uh, a time when Montpelier City decides to build a park, which is going to be right next to Mrs. Holmes. Uh, by the way, just uh, right yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to. Oh, go ahead. I said it's, it's also just almost right across the street from our home. Oh, I see. So we were a neighbor too to Mrs. Holmes, as well as uh, as well as uh, an adversary. Um, and uh, so you say, kind of an aside, they they built the park in the old style, right? You know, merry-go-rounds, uh, slides uh, on gravel. Uh, <laughs> Designed to maim, yeah. designed to maim young kids. You said, "Well, I guess you everybody survived." Um, so the key here yeah, was a lot, a lot of broken bones off of the Peter totters and merry-go-rounds and those uh, few of those other devices that sadistic adults developed. I think. By the way, in in her blurb, uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich says. 
These stories uh, shook up a few treasured assumptions about the importance of keeping kids safe. <laughs> I thought that was, <laughs> you know, this was old style. Oh, this, you know, this before seat belts. You know, the, there are there are reasons to the, these measures are in place. Why we don't have merry-go-rounds anymore, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I grew up with this stuff, and uh, you know, there there's some fond memories attached to uh, playgrounds like this. Uh, so tell us about this. Tell us about playing baseball next to Mrs. Holmes. Well, what uh, when they built that park, Mrs. Holmes had on the south side of her yard, it was right adjacent to the park. But I don't know why she did it, but she put up about a, I'd say about an eight foot fence that was uh, wire uh, all along that side of her house. I guess she just didn't want anything, you know, to do with what was going on at the park, and there were a lot of trees and flowers right near the fence. But if you put up an eight-foot fence on a park, that is automatically a backstop. And so uh, that's where we went on the park to have a backstop when we played ball. And what we tried to do in the summer, uh, they had a summer recreation program, but we'd also play on Sundays and, and in the evenings and you know, whenever you weren't working on the farm, you'd gather kids and go play, and you'd make up your own games. We didn't have organized leagues, but but uh, no one at that time was playing baseball, so baseballs were very scarce. And uh, you'd save up some money and go down to Phil Olsen's and buy a baseball. And then you'd do everything you could to protect that baseball. But what happened when you started playing next to Mrs. Holmes, if there was a foul ball that went over the backstop, it went into her yard. And then, uh, and as the story tells, that's when the fun began because she did not want you in her yard. We persisted in trying to get into the yard to beat her to the baseballs, but the minute we'd gather to play, she'd come out. She had a nasty cat, and she'd get her uh, a big rake and sometimes a water hose, and she'd just wait for a foul ball and then, and then race us to it. And even when we, we stationed some of us right near the fence, and you couldn't get over the fence, and uh, and she had one gate through there, but that's where she'd always be positioned. So you'd have to go down around the fence and try to attack her from two or three angles and beat her to the baseball. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> and she'd usually get it, wouldn't give it back. You'd go talk, you'd try to talk her out of it. She wouldn't give it back. Well, you know, so we we do mischievous things to her, and and, uh, and you know, I mean, we thought we had every right because she was stealing our baseballs. She felt she had every right because they were going into her yard. And so my mother, being the ultimate peacemaker and manipulator, decided that there's a way for, uh, uh, and and she found out that Mrs. Holmes needed someone to. Uh, you know, cut wood for her, do the kindling, take care of the furnace, clean out the clinkers, break up the coal, uh, carry some coal and wood up to her upstairs phone or uh, her upstairs stove, and then we would, you know, take care of the furnace. And Mother got us in there, and, and then the stories, all the different ways we try to find a baseball. And, uh, and then... And then she gets back at us. So it's an interesting thing. 
Uh, but oh, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> I think a lot of us have similar experiences, though. I didn't have a Mrs. Holmes, um, but I, I, I did definitely break a, at least one window. Um, so th- we have an email uh, now from uh, uh, Jane Beckwith in Delta, Utah, uh, yeah. s- who says, It's quite coincidental you're talking with Dr. Peterson about Montpelier today. I don't know if he would remember me, but he and other USU professors taught a class in Delta quite a while ago. For the last few days, I've been looking for information uh, about the uh, John Asil Beckwith family who moved to Montpelier from Evanston, Wyoming about 1906 to work as a carpenter on the railroad. His 14-year-old daughter, Lillian, was kidnapped uh, February 5th, 1920 by Arthur uh, Swennon from Cokeville. Uh, I've only been able to find two digital references from the Wyoming Times and the Montpelier Examiner, so I wondered if Dr. Peterson had heard the story. John A. Beckwith uh, was, was a son of Asil Collins Beckwith. Uh, John was my grandfather, Frank A. Beckwith's half-brother. Uh, A.C. Beckwith was a financial force in Wyoming until 1896 when he died. His empire immediately began to be chipped away. John had been manager of his bank until 1906 when it closed, and he moved his family of seven children to Montpelier. The empire was dissolved by 1917 by the court. Just wondering if, uh, if uh, Dr. Peterson, if you've heard of the story of the kidnapping. That's uh, Jane Beckwith in Delta. Yeah, I had not, and uh, Jane's a good friend, and she and her family have done so much for that community and helped us a lot with getting Topaz uh, recognized as a national landmark and things like that. They're a great family, and they've always had good ties to USU and Logan. But, uh, yeah, there were Beckwith that lived there when I was there. And uh, and the story, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of in Mr. Rich, my history teacher, wrote his thesis on the history of Montpelier. And I think there's a reference to it there, but we had heard the story kind of in the, in the, in the folklore of, uh, aspect of, uh, of of things not to do, you know, be careful with strangers and, and stuff like this. And, um, you know, about people being kidnapped. And, of course, uh, we were kind of always taught to be a little leery of Wyoming because they had slot machines longer. And that's where Butch Cassidy had gone after he robbed the bank in Montpelier and different things like that. But insofar as the particulars of that story uh, and the resolution I'm not, I'm, I know that it happened, and I know that people still talked about it uh, late as the 1950s. But the, uh, yeah, I went to school with Beckwith, uh, you know, that, that had lived there. I, mean, I don't think any of them are, I don't think any of them still live up there, but, but one of the great exports of small towns is their people. So, but anyway, that's a nice comment, Jane. Thank you, Jane. Appreciate that. That's uh, Jane in, in Delta. Uh, we just have about five minutes uh, left, Ross Peterson. I want to have you read another uh, p- passage. This is uh, page 120. Page 120. And uh, this is uh, the story called Jerry's Homecoming. So setting this up, your 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 friend Jerry got polio, right? And then he's he's uh, sent, yeah. away, sent away for treatment, right? And then, then now he's uh, back home, and I guess the, you and friends go to visit him, right? Um, yeah. and so this is the, yeah, this uh, is, this is the aftermath, this, this page here. So I wonder if you just read this page, starting with his mother came in and, and, and just uh, to the end of the, uh, the last full paragraph there. 
Okay, thanks. His mother came in quietly, said Jerry needed to rest. She ushered us toward the door. I took my time putting my boots on and played with Jerry's younger brother, Kevin, and little sister, Jan. Jerry called for me to come back beside him. Softly, almost whispering, he said, No more ball for me. I can play the trumpet, but I will get better. I hope they let me stay home. Don't worry. Bringing back tears, I could only shake my head, slowly pull on my mittens, and wave. I'll be back. As I left Jerry's home and promised to see him off, and his mother walked out with me and quietly thanked me for coming. She was so gentle and kind and comforting, but my thoughts were about her pain. It all seemed so fundamentally unfair. With the snow coming down a little harder, I pulled my sled toward 4th Street. As I crossed Main Street, the colored Christmas lights on the gigantic trees rode softly through the snow. It looked like Christmas, but it just did not seem much like Christmas. I began to jog along the sidewalk and then stopped abruptly, feeling guilty that I could run. As I passed Hooker's Tiny Market, I checked my pocket loose change. Finding none, I walked fast. Yeah, that that strikes me. Just the you know, kind of the awkwardness. Your you know, your your children essentially, right? Your young yeah, he, people. And yeah, it, he was paralyzed from the waist down at the time, and he made a choice. He wanted to be home. He thought he could rehab, and it was you know, we'd already had the polio shots and things, and I've thought about it a lot during this pandemic. But uh, he and a few others later on on a booster shot or something. They got a bad batch, and it, and it affected them differently. But uh, but uh, but he was he he worked so hard. We were sophomores in high school, and he'd missed the whole fall. But uh, our school didn't have elevators. We didn't have anything for handicapped. We literally had to carry him up to the other, you know, the classrooms and different things. And and he gradually, gradually made progress. And, uh, but for me at the time, it was very, very traumatic. His dad had been killed in a car wreck about two years before that. And that's what I was talking about being so unfair to his mother and, and it, his family. It, and then we, we won't have time to really uh, jump into this. Um, but I was very touched just right after the passage you read, you, you run into your high school history teacher, Mr. Rich, and you ask if you can right. help him shovel. And during that, during that shoveling, during that chore, uh, he c- kind of helps you work through, you know, how can God let bad things happen to good people? So it's, it's, it's a, a very touching teaching moment for Mr. Rich. It really is. And uh, uh, Mr. Rich is still alive. He's 95 up in Portland. And uh, anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it was one of those things that, for whatever reason, I didn't. You know, I never talked uh, religious questions with my folks. I mean, uh, my mother. I think it would have disturbed her that I was questioning. My dad uh, was never that engaged, really. With that, I I'd go into some real. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, it's just my nature that I'm, I'm going to question things, and so. He just caught me at a time, and uh, he'd been in World War II on a, a bomber. Um, he'd seen a lot. He had 
who had two degrees from USU. He's a fantastic teacher, but but he did help me through it. And uh, and you know, it isn't like it's the end of the world. But I think every once in a while we need to ask why. We need to feel like we can be in some control of our destiny. That everything isn't random. But but he taught me that we live our lives in a series of split seconds, and uh, and sometimes it's out of your hands, and you have to make the best of it. Yeah, it's, and it's... Uh, a lot of those stories kind of. I mean, it, it's. I think it's a gamble, Tom. To, to put, but I, but I feel it's necessary to talk about some of my weaknesses in the stories, the weaknesses I had as a child, some of the things that still reflected in me because I want my children and grandchildren to understand me as well. And uh, it's it's never been a, uh, you know, a, a world of of extremes. It's trying to navigate your way through it. It's not all either right or wrong. I mean, it's, yeah, certainly, and, uh, certainly true. And well, you, we'll have to have to leave the it there. Things is you just weren't condemned. I like that. Yeah. Well, it's very touching. The, your teacher was there for you in that uh, poignant moment. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. The book is Christmas in Montpelier. Ross Peterson is USU Professor Emeritus. And uh, there will be an event tonight at 6. Uh, you can register for this free event, virtual event, by going to the USU Alumni Association page and clicking on events. Ross Peterson, a pleasure, as always. Thank you so much. Thanks for the book. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Okay. Have a good day. You too. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and USU Student Media. Now accepting votes for the Best of Logan contest where the community can vote for a favorite food place, car dealership, or whatever. The survey can be found at usustatesman.com slash bestoflogan. Utah Public Radio is a statewide, member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, UPR.org, and the UPR app.